Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today on Policy Forum Pod Extra, it's Judgment Day as we look at the ruling on the South China Sea dispute. We have a very strong, uh, very comprehensive, uh, unanimous decision by the tribunal uh, on the arguments presented by the Philippines. And we find out what it means for one of the region's flashpoints. It really does uh, change the game in, in a number of ways. Hello and welcome to this Policy Forum Pod Extra. I'm Martin Pierce. Yesterday, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague ruled in favour of the Philippines in the case the country brought against China over the disputed South China Sea region. It was a historic decision and is a potential game-changer for one of the region's key flashpoints. Coming up on this Policy Forum Pod Extra, we'll have a look at how China and the region will likely respond, and whether it will spell an end to the construction of artificial islands that we've all seen the dramatic pictures of. First though, let's have a look at the ruling itself. What was it looking at? What did it find? And what does it mean? Helping me to unpick that is international law expert Professor Don Rothwell of the Australian National University's College of Law. Don Rothwell, thanks for joining Policy Forum Pod. You're welcome. Don, can you briefly explain to us what the court was asked to rule on and what it actually found? Well, the Philippines brought essentially three claims before the tribunal. Um, The first related to the legitimacy of China's so-called nine-dash line, which is a series of broken lines which encompass approximately 90% of the South China Sea. Uh, within which uh, China has sought to claim a series of so-called historic rights. Uh, The second uh, was the the status of the potential maritime entitlements of China and the Philippines with respect to uh, a number of the maritime features, uh, islands, rocks, shoals and reefs, as they sit within the so-called nine-dash line. Uh, And the third uh, principal component uh, related to Um, China's uh, land reclamation and building of artificial islands and the legitimacy of that activity and the environmental impact issues arising from that. They were the three major dimensions. There were some other uh, related aspects, but they're the three major points. And on all of those uh, claims uh, made by the Philippines, uh, the tribunal has ruled unanimously in favour of the Philippines on every one of those points. Uh, So to that end, uh, we have a very strong, uh, very comprehensive, uh, unanimous decision by the tribunal uh, on the arguments presented by the Philippines. So was that a surprising result? Well, look, one has to be a little guarded in responding to that question. Um, And the principal reason for it is that um, the proceedings are ones in which China 
absolutely refused to formally be a part of. And that created significant challenges for the tribunal. Um, the tribunal did go to great lengths to uh, provide China with opportunities to participate, uh, invitations for China to participate, uh, even at very late stages of the proceedings. Now, China's uh, continuing refusal to participate remained absolute, though interestingly, uh, there was in late 2014 an official government position paper that was released dealing with a number of the legal issues and the tribunal uh, sought to take that into account. But the reason why I preface my response by making those points is that um, there was always going to be some uncertainty as to how the tribunal was going to deal with this uh, rather unique situation of where uh, the Philippines is bringing the claim uh, against China uh, jurisdiction is not really contested because both countries are parties to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, and yet China refuses to turn up, refuses to participate in the process. So the tribunal, therefore, um, was was hamstrung because it didn't have the advantage of Chinese legal argument, and there were very good legal arguments that China could have presented. Um, so the, the tribunal, in, in preparing its decision, needed to take into account not only the arguments that Philippines made, but also the possible arguments that China would have made. So to a degree, the, tri the tribunal has to be very even-handed and seek to anticipate, uh, contemplate and, and deal with the potential legal arguments China might have raised in response. So to my mind, that always created a bit of a question mark as to how the tribunal uh, would decide. Um, so uh, whilst the decision is exceptionally decisive, um, it needs to be considered against that rather unique backdrop in terms of how the dynamics of these proceedings developed. So if China had participated and had put forward their own evidence, the outcome of this could have been different? Look, I think that that's fair to say. It could have been different uh, because, in my view, China, uh, A, would have been able to present um, I think, very strong legal arguments. Um, now, they developed those legal arguments in writing, but there's a big difference between developing them in writing and actually formally presenting them to the tribunal and actually being questioned before the tribunal when you make those arguments. And the second dimension that China would have been able to introduce before the tribunal was uh, evidence, evidence in terms of Chinese uh, historic rights to the South China Sea. So... Uh, those factors need to be taken into account. Nevertheless, China is a sovereign state and China made its own decision not to participate in these proceedings. So uh, whatever are the consequences of the outcome of the decision, uh, this was a decision that China made. Uh, it's a sovereign decision of its own. It's an entitlement of its own. So it, it bears the consequences of the outcome of the decision in that respect. Is this result enforceable in any way? Look, um, there is no international police force uh, who can go out and enforce uh, this decision. Um, and unlike decisions of the International Court of Justice, um, there's no ultimate fallback mechanism of the enforcement of a decision of the International Court by, say, the UN Security Council. So there is no clear enforcement mechanism uh, that's available uh, to the Philippines. Having said that... Um, because of the factors that we've discussed, the decision carries great uh, moral weight, moral authority, 
and certainly lays down a, a significant benchmark in terms of the key legal issues that were in dispute between uh, the Philippines and China. And to that end, um, the decision will clearly uh, be the basis upon which any ongoing negotiations uh, arise between the Philippines and China over these issues in the South China Sea. Uh, And so to that end, uh, its moral weight and its significance uh, will certainly stand the test of time. Are there any avenues for appeal for China? I mean, they've reacted quite strongly against this this result. Yes, no. Um, and this is uh, the process that exists with uh, the decisions of international courts and tribunals uh, in this particular area. There's no, there's no appeal options. Uh, there is a, a technical capacity under which um, the Philippines, for example, could go back to the tribunal and ask for a clarification on certain points. Uh, that's a rarely used procedure. Um, but otherwise, uh, on the basis of the decision of last night, uh, this matter has now been uh, effectively concluded. Do you think this decision will do anything to affect China's activities in the disputed region? Look, I, I think that at the moment um, it's uh, it's too early to tell. Um, we've had reactions, of course, from China, um, which which was well uh, indicated in advance that because China doesn't respect the jurisdiction of the tribunal, uh, China does not believe that this is a legitimate process. They've criticised the process as being a unilateral application by the Philippines and and the uh, reaction within the first 24 hours of the judgment uh, just is really a continuation along those lines. Um, so I'd be surprised if there's any, any immediate uh, change in Chinese position on the matter. Um, but um, the decision, uh, I think, uh, is this benchmark, as I've said, and ultimately... Uh, that while the decision does not deal with territorial issues, and that's a really important point to make, the tribunal didn't have jurisdiction to resolve who is the territorial sovereign over these disputed islands and these rocks. Uh, Because it sets such a benchmark, and because there can be no doubt that China is bound by the Law of the Sea Convention, as is the Philippines, it has to be the basis upon which the two countries, when they do sit down to discuss and negotiate issues in the South China Sea, will immediately refer to. Uh, so I think that, that gradually China will be drawn into at least acknowledging, well, yes, we have this decision. It's, it's, it's determined a series of questions in the, in the favour of the Philippines. We don't necessarily agree with it, but nevertheless, we do accept that there needs to be a process of at least negotiation. And, and China continues to talk about negotiation with the Philippines. Um, in fact, one of its criticisms of the process that the Philippines initiated was that uh, they circumvented negotiation by going to a court to commence this process. So um, I think the initial test will be, uh, is China going to send out messages that it's willing to engage uh, the Philippines in terms of bilateral negotiations? We've had a change of government in the Philippines. We've got a new president uh, that will change the dynamics that existed from the previous uh, administration in the Philippines. Uh, So we'll really need to wait and see on that front. What about the rest of the international community? How should they respond to this this ruling? Well, look, I think uh, we can expect uh, different reactions from different parts of the international community. The the most directly affected group of states are, of course, uh, the other ASEAN states uh, who have got 
um, maritime claims in the South China Sea, uh, where there are very, very similar issues uh, for those states uh, as exist for the Philippines. So the principal players in that regard are, of course, uh, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, uh, Brunei, and to a lesser degree, uh, Indonesia. And then, of course, we have the wild card of Taiwan, the Republic of China. Um, but certainly, I think Malaysia and Vietnam uh, will be studying this decision very, very carefully because there are very similar issues that they have with China in terms of the status of the nine-dash line, in terms of the status of uh, Chinese assertion of maritime uh, sovereign rights and jurisdiction uh, over uh, the, the islands and rocks and small maritime features and the way that that overlaps with the uh, claims asserted off the uh, Vietnamese and Malaysian coastline. So those states, I think, will probably be in a very similar position to uh, the Philippines because they will rely upon this decision as a precedent, which they can directly use in their negotiations with uh, China over the matter. Um, for countries like, say, uh, Australia and other like-minded countries who are parties to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, we'll probably see uh, statements, as we've seen uh, from Australian Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, seeking to reaffirm the importance of respect for the rule of law, uh, respect for the Law of the Sea Convention, uh, and respect for fundamental principles of the Law of the Sea, such as navigational rights and freedoms. Um, the difficulty is the United States, and, and, and I say that because uh, the United States is not a party to the Convention on the Law of the Sea. And as a result, uh, its ability to uh, strongly argue for respect for the rule of law, respect for the convention is really undermined because of the continuing uh, refusal of the United States to formally become a party uh, to the convention. Uh, nevertheless, I think that we will see uh, the United States, as they have uh, in, in recent years and indeed for many decades, continue to assert uh, that the freedom of navigation and the freedom of overflight uh, exists in the South China Sea that's consistent with customary international law. By and large, that's not really a controversial proposition, uh, but the issue will be how strongly the United States seeks to provoke uh, China in terms of undertaking its freedom of navigation operations. Don, you poured over all 400 pages of the, uh, of the ruling. We really appreciate your time in helping us understand this important issue. Thanks. My thanks to Don for his time there. So we've looked at the ruling itself and what it means to all the parties. But what does the ruling mean for China's relations with the region and the rest of the world? What about the Philippines? How is new President Rodrigo Duterte likely to respond? Helping us to understand that is Dr. John Blacksland. John is a senior fellow in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre in the Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. John Blacksland, thanks for joining Policy Forum Pod. Thank you for having me, Martin. John, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague has ruled in favour of the Philippines in its dispute with China uh, over the, that country's activities in the South China Sea. Were you surprised by the ruling? Yes, I was a little bit, I must admit. The ruling was surprising in that it was not only unanimous, but it was very stark in its rulings. It extinguished China's historical claim. It ruled that temporary or passing residents on the island that could not sustain habitation in the past did not justify historical claims and that the UN conventions had extinguished his historical claims from the past. So this really significantly undermined uh, China's position 
on the Nine Dash Line and its claims in the South China Sea. It also negated the, the, the uh, legal ambit claims of the various states for the legitimacy of their islands that they've constructed. That includes Malaysia, the Philippines, Vietnam and others, So, uh, including Taiwan. So this is a very significant, very significant uh, and a momentous ruling. It really does uh, change the game in, in a number of ways. China has responded by declaring the ruling null and void and saying that it won't affect the country's interests in the South China Sea. Beyond that country's immediate response to the ruling, what does it actually mean for China? Well, what it means for China is that it's now facing a far more contested space in terms of its legitimacy in asserting its claims. This will most likely embolden not only the Philippines, but the grouping it's a part of, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, or at least the, the vast majority of its member states, to actually be much more resistant to China's attempts to um, undermine uh, efforts to get a unified statement coming out of future ASEAN-related forums. It also, I think, emboldens the United States because this is a position. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com that the United States has been backing. Uh, it's one of the reasons why it's been support, so supportive of the Philippines uh, in, in uh, pursuing this um, <clears throat> legal claim in the Permanent Court of Arbitration. So China is now in, in, in an interesting position because it has to deal with its own rhetoric. Domestically, there's a real significant concern that's emerged overnight, and that is that there's the nationalist genie appears to be popping out of the bottle. Uh, the government in Beijing has ratcheted up the rhetoric for the last week or so about the situation in the South China Sea. It has adamantly asserted its claims for legitimacy. It has left not an iota of space for any light to come through to suggest that that's not completely true. And therefore, it's now in a very awkward position where the rest of the world is standing up against it. So what to do? Now, we've seen that China is trying to put the genie back in the bottle, trying to stamp out some of the um, most out, more outlandish kind of remarks that are on, on the internet. But this is of its own making. China has actively pursued a nationalist agenda that is, you know, for a variety of reasons, which we can go into separately. But essentially... In doing so, China has made it very difficult for it to back down and to find a way out of this impasse. And that means that the way ahead for China probably means continuing down the path it's already trod. Now, it may well take some time before it goes there. Uh, it's conceivable that uh, I believe there's a G20 forum coming up. There's, uh, there's, uh, there's probably space for a pause before they take any significant action, but it's quite conceivable that they could take further action to uh, proceed with apparent plans to build uh, on Scarborough Shoal. The, there is possibility that they could pursue an air defence identification zone, the establishment of such an aid is, across the South China Sea. These, are, these would be provocative steps, but they're steps that are conceivable in the current predicament because President Xi Jinping has made such an issue of the South China Sea and he's also conscious that 
President Obama has only a few months left in office and he's not at all clear on what his the successor president will do, whether it's uh, Hillary Clinton or uh, Donald Trump. Either of them conceivably could take a much more uh, belligerent tone and, and posture towards China in the South China Sea. So there is a bit of a, uh, an incentive for Xi Jinping to act quickly and get the job completed before the end of Obama's term. That means that we may well see something happen, um, even if it's not announced in the next uh, few months. When you say we may see something happen, what, what are you thinking of? This is uh, well. We're, what we are seeing, and will probably continues to see this happen, is the uh, the three tiered uh, maritime strategy pursued. We have the PLA Navy, People's Liberation Army Navy, the grey painted warships, often sitting over the horizon. We have the white painted maritime law enforcement vessels, the Coast Guard type vessels with water cannons uh, that are essentially, uh, you know military forces in all but in uh, in name and then you have the actual fishing fleets or what some people are calling the china's maritime militia which is essentially um fishing fleets fishing vessel crews who have been given a mandate to act on at the behest of the government of china and to actually contribute to the difficulty that other fishermen other fishing uh fishing groups are able to experience in South China Sea. So we've seen this. We've seen this around the Natuna Island exclusive economic zone of Indonesia. We've seen it for the Filipinos around Scarborough Shoal and in their exclusive economic zone. Essentially, the the Chinese have got hundreds of these vessels, uh, if not thousands of of fishing vessels, but hundreds of the the maritime law enforcement vessels and hundreds of Navy ships that patrol the South China Sea and intimidate fishing vessels out of what were their traditional uh, uh, fishing grounds and uh, what the UNCLOS would grant to the various uh, uh, abutting countries as their exclusive economic zones. So that is likely to continue. But in addition to that, this is the, 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 the big question. Will China ratchet it up further? Uh, and that's by going down the ADIZ route or going down the route of pursuing plans, apparent plans to construct yet another island uh, on Scarborough Shoal. They're actually significant because if that happens, there is likely to be a reaction, not only from the Philippines, but from other states and particularly from the United States. And that's where there is the real risk of this escalating. And the the thing is that the stakes are getting higher and higher. They're getting higher and higher because the, the United States has made concessions and its reputation has been to a certain extent on the line before, but it's more on the line now than it was in the past. The Scarborough Shoal, prior to the ruling, was contested. There was real uh, legal uh, questions over uh, whether or not uh, the rights of the Philippines were defensible over something like Scarborough Shoal. What this ruling makes clear is that the Scarborough Shoal accrues no uh, no uh, no uh, jurisdictional benefits, but it fits well squarely within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone, and therefore is not subject to China's claim. It, it is not appropriate, and it's actually illegal 
according to the UNCLOS, for China to act in that space to claim it and to intimidate the Philippines' fishing vessels out of that space. That means that if China proceeds down this path, there may be an expectation, there will be an expectation, I I would I put put to you, that the Philippines will expect the United States to back them in resisting China's actions there. And that's a real rub point. You, you mentioned the Philippines there, and we saw overnight that people were celebrating the Philippines, but the government itself reacted with a certain amount of caution. What would you expect to see the Philippines do next? Now, this is where I think there is a degree of hope that we can actually find a path out of this uh, predicament uh, that is peaceful and maybe beneficial uh, to more than just one side. We have, uh, thankfully, a new president. Uh, I mean, he's he's got a reputation of being a dirty Harry, you know, kind of playing on the Clint Eastwood image of a gunslinger. He's got a, a, a quite a rough and tumble reputation. But what we're seeing is that um, his focus is really domestic. It's not about externals. And he doesn't own this uh this issue in the South China Sea. This was something, this was an agenda item from his predecessor, someone who really he doesn't have that much time for and he doesn't feel any ownership of this issue. So uh, we may see President Rodrigo Duterte take a step that is conciliatory towards China that may well uh, provide China with with an option, an, an out, a little bit of a safe face uh, saving mechanism to perhaps diffuse the crisis a little bit. Um, but then the question is, of course, whether or not China is willing to go there because it's invested so much in making this happen. So President Duterte uh, is in a very important position in terms of what happens next, how he responds, how gracious he is uh, with China, uh, how much he seeks to play this down will, in fact, I think, make a big difference in terms of what happens after that. What about the rest of the international community? How should they be responding? Well, I think it's very important that the Philippines' partner nations in ASEAN uh, work to find a way forward that seeks to break through this impasse. They they've all, they will all, I'm pretty confident, uh, endorse what uh, UNCLOS, the UNCLOS ruling from the Permanent Court of Arbitration. The question now is whether or not they can revisit the issue of the Code of Conduct uh, with that's been under negotiation for 14 years with China, between ASEAN and China, whether or not they can actually come up with some uh, collaborative mechanisms to ex- to exploit the resources uh, in the South China Sea in a collaborative manner. Now that I think is the potential uh, way out of this impasse. If that mechanism is not pursued, we may well face um, you know this being a, a festering problem that will. Uh, uh, potentially get worse, uh, but certainly not improve. I'd like to just go back to a point that you made earlier. You talked about the rhetoric of nationalism has been ramped up by China in the wake of this ruling. Why do you think China has responded in that way? Well, I think we have to revisit China's history. We need to remember that China has a long history of having been um, humiliated uh, throughout the 19th and earlier uh, first half of the 20th century. And this really resonates uh, in China's consciousness, I understand. And this is also something that in a country that has maintains a, a Communist Party dictatorship, uh, yet doesn't really buy into Marxism anymore into the, in the way that it did under Mao, uh, 
nationalism plays a very important part of the equation. And so that that is pretty much accepted. But when the economic circumstances become more difficult, um, nationalism and external factors can be this is you know a historically observed trend that countries look to external factors to um, seek to um, you know ameliorate or soften the effect of uh, <clears throat> crises internally to the country or economic challenges so that's a factor another factor is of course the fact that um, China is a rising power and we know that historically rising powers, uh, when they rub up against uh, established great powers, uh, more often than not end in conflict with that, uh, with that great power that they're competing with. So we're seeing China assert itself over the South China Sea uh, in a way that is a, a, it appears quite clearly to be about diminishing American influence in the South China Sea and encouraging and if not coaxing the Southeast Asian states to be beholden to effectively kowtow. Uh, and that's something that we're seeing and, um, you know, we've seen colleagues of mine, uh, Professor Evelyn Go and uh, Bates Gill came out with a paper yesterday with the US Studies Centre that made it very clear that countries in Southeast Asia that might have been uh, more closely aligned with China in the past have actually become more wary and they've been hedging much more than would have been the case previously because they're worried about Chinese unilateral uh, hegemonic acts that are not in the interests of the countries being affected. And the United States uh, being the uh, effectively the the, the, the guarantor of the of the San Francisco system, the post-World War II UN construct, um, is the country that they're turning to. And, and uh, the rebalance, the so-called pivot, has uh, meant that even uh, former enemies like Vietnam are now quite happy to um, engage with the United States to solicit support and to look for opportunities to actually hedge against China without turning completely away from China because obviously countries like the Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos simply can't. They're neighbours of China. They have to be respectful. But they want to find a strategic breathing space and that's where the United States is playing a very important and significant role. And of course, that means that China is, um, while it's material power, its economic power, its military power is growing, its soft power remains limp. And that's something that China, it's really in China's hands as to how, how they respond to that and make a difference there. What's your best guess about what's going to happen over the coming weeks and months? You know, Martin, it's actually very hard to, to call. Um, and, uh, and pundits have been incredibly wrong in the past. So, uh, I'm optimistic to a point. I think uh, the Chinese, the Americans, the Filipinos and others all recognise that um, it's not in their interests to go to war over Scarborough Shoals or over the Nine Dash Line. But the question is whether or not in pushing their interests, uh, any of those sides may miscalculate and in miscalculating uh, trigger something that is uh, beyond their control. And the rhetoric that um, you hear online uh, and, and in certain conversations in, in the Chinese community, it's volatile. It's seriously volatile. Um, and that that suggests that um, uh, the, the Chinese government may well have 
more of an issue on its hand in containing its desire to, uh, you know, seek vengeance, if you like, for the 19th and the 20th century or to establish in, that it is the, 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 the top dog in South, the South China Sea. There's a real issue of pride here as well. This is a concern about um, reputation and uh, this is a very thin-skinned country that is very sensitive and very unwilling to take criticism over how it handles its border relations across Southeast Asia. And that's part of the problem. This is why, while I'm relatively optimistic that cool heads will prevail, there are dark clouds on the horizon. We need to be very mindful of what they imply. So it sounds like China has both a significant internal and external challenge to face as a result of this. Absolutely. And uh, that's something that in engaging with China, the Philippines needs to understand that. The United States understands it very well. But the question is whether in understanding it and in trying to respond to it, either side miscalculates and steps over a line that, that triggers something that is hard to walk back from. John Blacksland, thanks so much for helping us unpick this uh, important and fast-moving issue. My pleasure, Martin. So we've looked at the legal decision and what it means, and we've had a look at how the international community and China itself is likely to respond in the coming months and years. I hope you found it interesting and enlightening. You can keep up to date with this developing story at policyforum.net where we have plenty of fascinating pieces looking at every aspect of the South China Sea dispute. We are interested in hearing your thoughts about what we've talked about today. You can email us at team at policyforum.net, tweet us at appspolicyforum, or on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. If you've enjoyed this pod and you're feeling generous, we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a quick review at iTunes. It's a big help to us in getting the word out about the series. We'll be back on Friday with our regular Policy Forum pod, which this week looks at the issue of a universal basic income. We've got some great speakers on that, and it's well worth a listen. So until then, cheerio.